You must remember this A kiss is just a kiss A sigh is just a sigh The fundamental things apply As time goes by Of all the podcasts in all the web You chose to listen to mine it again, Sam. The world will always welcome lovers as time goes by. Here we go. Hello and good afternoon, Marlo. Hello, the web. How are we all? Yes, welcome once again. It's Play It Again, Sam. It's Wednesday and I'm joined today by my guest, Daniel Snell. Hello. Hello, Daniel. Uh, let me give you a little bit of background on who and what Daniel does and what we're going to be talking about today. Daniel is the co-founder and CEO of Arrival Education, a diversity and inclusion specialist consultancy firm. And we're going to find out in his 14 odd years of doing that, what really is, is the value and proposition now for corporates and companies now to look at diversity and inclusion. I think Daniel calls it the diversity dividend. Um, Daniel also is, a, is very interesting as well. He has a similar taste in uh, his interest in wine, martial arts, and he's about to go and do next April, if, if his body lets him, hopefully, yeah, yeah. the Marathon de Sable, the, um, the six marathons in six days. Something like that. Apparently, it's described as the, ha- the hardest foot race in the world. I think that's how they describe it, isn't it? <laughs> how crazy is that? Um, Daniel, welcome. How are you? I'm all right, you know, but I am struggling. I won't lie. I'm, I basically have a... Uh, I'm having a, a very extreme diet... Um, and um, you can't see this, but I'm I'm a little overweight and I'm quite big, and so <laughs> I'm working with this amazing coach who I'll maybe tell you a little bit later on called Rory Coleman, who's run it 15 times, and his shtick is he's done a thousand, oh. a thousand marathons, and he is a cruel, cruel man. Right. <laughs> so I'm basically on a massive uh, calorie deficit diet, and I'm holding myself together with coffee. So if I, <laughs> if I start talking too much, you know, that's why. So, um, okay, let, let's give everyone a little flavour of the pain you're going through. You're currently in kgs how much? I am approximately 100 kilograms. And you've got to get down to the wonderful weight of? <laughs> Below 80. <laughs> Below 80. <laughs> exactly. Which is roughly around 12 stone. Oh, that's, uh, that's So right. you're about 14 stone. Oh, and, uh, yeah, well, now I'm six. 16 nearly oh, and so I've got I've got to lose a lot of weight wow. and, and, and you know just let me just say that I'm not I'm not unhealthy I just <laughs> I've been exercising with the weight but in order to you know run 250 kilometers in the desert I've just got to get myself yeah, weight running you can't have any body fat really no no I've got to drop my I've got to drop my weight which is absolutely fine you know I'm happy to do that and I'm, I'm so glad I'm working with um, with Rory to do that because he's a proper taskmaster <laughs> I have to send him photos of everything I eat right and he says get rid of that avocado oh. no snacking or 
Do you think avocado's healthy? Bananas healthy? Right. I bet bananas aren't on your list no, either. No, but apparently two bananas have more sugar than a can of Coke. I'm getting educated. Yeah, I read that when you put that up, and I, I, I have a, I have a banana smoothie every morning. That's just going to go. Me. That's me. I am such a green smoothie guy. <laughs> every morning, I have a, I have my Nutribullet drink, but not even that. So basically, it's 40 grams of porridge in the morning with some salt and water lunch is a small piece of protein and some salad and dinner is a small piece of protein and some greens and i'm trying to run 40 miles a week wow okay good luck (laughs) exactly not only the mad right yeah the mad disable as they call it um before we get back to that, mm. obviously, I, I want to cover about uh, what you do today. So, you're the co-founder of a wonderful organisation called Arrival Education. Mm. What is Arrival Education? So, Arrival Education was... F- what Arrival Education do now is we work with leading businesses to help them unlock the diversity dividend. And what that means is um, there is a huge uh, talent um, that's out there, both outside of our UK PLC organisations and currently employed by them, who aren't effectively, in my humble opinion, fully utilised. So if you think uh, about it this way, every kind of mainstream organisation has streamlined their management and logistics. They've offshored if they uh, if they make anything, and they've implemented their uh, their tech solutions. So what? what's left in order to drive profit. So my big idea is how do we uh, attract different sorts of talent into an organization, effectively widening the DNA talent pool, um, and then get the most out of those different sorts of people so that we can have another significant step forward in profitability and innovation. Another way of looking at it is if you have if you just recruit always the same sort of people and progress in your organization always the same sort of people you're always going to get the same sort of answers and outputs so by bringing in different experiences and different visions and and different voices you start to innovate and by uh, allowing that to flourish you drive new market opportunities you get better engagement you attract the best talent and you start to open up new markets so a lot of people have been looking at this for a long time but where we're coming from is specifically speaking into the commercial opportunities for business leaders and and that's who we work with we work with some of the uk's largest and best organizations and their executive teams to help them unlock that diversity dividend so So why is it called a dividend well, effectively, it's like unpacking the commercial opportunities. Uh, how do you amplify the opportunities that are there? Um, and so by unlocking that, you get a dividend payback. Um, so you're, you're suddenly um, unlocking lots of latent talent and ideas and energy and opportunity in your people um, in ways that you haven't to this, uh, this point. So in the way that tech completely disrupted and then re-stimulated growth for a lot of organizations so i believe how organizations recruit and empower their people will also be a transformative moment in large organizations so here's an example right so tech businesses are really disrupted traditional organizations now you could argue that it was the tech right that has been the disruptive aspect or you could argue 
just as well, they started rec recruiting very different sorts of people than mainstream organisations who, frankly, those sort of people wouldn't have got onto graduate programmes because they were maybe didn't have the social skills and the polish, let's right. say. Okay. But or the so right degree. Or, or the right, right degree or just the right, you know, they weren't perceived in the same way as potential future leaders for kind of UK PLC, right? And look at what Eton old boys have done, done to us. Right. And so... <laughs> Tech, with all these people, who these geeky people, let's say, came with a whole bunch of different ideas and attitudes and completely tore up through innovation the market. So my point is, was it the new sorts of interesting talent who were put in positions of um, decision-making and creativity that transformed the world's uh, businesses? Or, or was it the tech? Um, so what happens if we could take the same approach to people? What happens if we could say, well, who's to say that this sort of people actually should manage or or innovate the organisation? Let's look at different people and, and maybe question or challenge our different ideas of what talent is. And by the way, let me just say right off the bat, I'm not saying let's get rid of white middle-class men because... I am one of those, um, and those people are, are really important. So when we're talking about inclusion, we are talking about including everybody. Um, you know, you can't cherry pick <laughs> diversity. You can't cherry pick inclusion. You know, you're either inclusive or you're not. Right. You either have diversity or you don't. Um, and so those people are a really important part of that jigsaw. I'm just suggesting maybe uh, that anemic approach to what leaders are and what decision makers are shouldn't necessarily always be a kind of a cookie cutter approach and by opening and allowing different sorts of blood and energy and ideas and experiences into businesses then i think we'll start to produce some very different results and if we think about the global market and where the next big growth opportunities are asia africa um these are the 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 talent that I typically work with have heritage in those those environments. So there's all sorts of benefits of starting to to look for talent in different ways and and how to engage with that talent so it drives innovation. And I've been, I guess I've been doing this, I'm sorry I'm sounding really excited, but I'm really passionate about this. I've been doing it for kind of 15 years now. And I've met so many talented young people who, because of the way there are kind of structural issues to how businesses have historically identified talent don't get a break don't get ahead so you know interesting stats so in america the conversion rate from internship into full-time job offer is about 65 percent in the uk it's approaching 50 percent so effectively uh, the way to get into the best jobs and the best roles now is through your network and something called an internship, which is effectively for the listener like a work experience, but with a bit of plus plus. With parents backing. Of course, it's network. So some businesses will will offer internships to their clients. So if you're a if you're a client or a business partner to that organisation, they will offer an internship experience to their children. Um, so it's about network, or it's about the private school network. Again, nothing wrong with that, but hang on, who's to say that's the most talented in my experience of, you know, obviously doing this for a long time. Businesses get so frustrated that these, you know, these kids turn up, they're not really interested, they've just been told by their dad they have to have an internship. Yeah. So they, they sit around and, you know, staple or undo staples or whatever, and it's a bad experience for them, it's, it's a pointless experience for the business on the whole, but it seems to be that's... 
you know, that's how the system works. But if you look at universities, only 1.2% of Oxbridge are ethnically diverse in terms of their graduates, like 4% against the Russell Group universities. So we have to have a radical look at where this talent is and what they bring and how do we recruit them because fundamentally the educational system was also not really fit for purpose and we can talk about that as well yeah so so let, let, let's before we move on to that which i think is a massive thing we do need to talk about mm. um my, my, my question is the channels are there or are you saying the the channels aren't open to ethnically diverse people because you're saying the number that's coming out of the university is so low as a yeah. percentage. Yeah, right. So clearly the number coming in has to be low. Yeah, of course. Um, so are they not getting the opportunities? Is this where we're... Are we not seeing... Because I know from my background, like right. being Asian, yeah. you know, we, we were brought up very much on education is the key mm, to unlock the Some Asians, door. that's true, not all Asians. Right? Okay, mm. no, okay, maybe in my... my um, yeah. Uh, cultural yeah. breakdown, yeah. Uh, my class, yeah. if that's the right word to use. Yeah. Um, but you know, my family, you know, it's like you know, if, unless you're a doctor, a lawyer, or accountant, right. you haven't. Yeah. Really that's achieved. also like a, a West African thing as well, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, and and so I'm just trying to understand because a lot of lot of uh, I mean, Chinese culture is very mm. similar. So yeah, right. All mm. of us, in that sense, are driven. To, to yeah. educate yeah. and to achieve as much and just as we think, can. Just think lots of people don't want those sort of people coming into the country. What hard-working, switched-on, <laughs> educated. Yeah, I was I, I was going to mention that B word later on. Uh, I mean, what, we what are we going to do when, you know... So I, I, I've got a real-world example where mm. I've got a cousin who's just graduated from um, an American university having done his Indian graduation. Right. Doctor. Yeah. Does not want to come to this country at all. Right, because, uh, yeah, bad PR at the moment, right? Not just, well, it, it, the, the effect is, he, he says to me, well, you don't want us here. Yeah. You, it, you, you're closed. You're a, yeah. you know, you don't want people of a darker yeah. colour, so yeah. I'll go and use my talent elsewhere. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I got it. So, I guess your point is, uh, why is that? Why is there a pressure to behave in a particular way if you're from those communities? And how? why is that not translating through to university? If, if, uh, or, or because it, as a percent, or are our ethnic cultures such a small percentage of the population? Therefore, mm. it's just a percentage number. Mm. Well, I, th- I think there, are, there. Are, um, I, yeah, let's stick to percentage because there's always individuals who buck it, right? So if you, every year, Oxbridge rolls out that picture of a bunch of you know uh, African heritage young people standing on the steps. Yeah. First of all, half of them are privately educated Nigerians, so you know they're effectively privileged, anyways. Yeah. So we're talking a prince, yeah. right? <laughs> So we're talking about like 14 <laughs> kids from state schools who are black. You know, if you're trying to recruit that sort of demographic, then obviously Oxbridge isn't going to work. But what it, point, what it points to is the system is fundamentally broken. Um, so, uh, and by the way, I, you know, I had some private education. So I'm, again, I'm, I'm speaking from a privileged place. But, um, you know, as a 
business recruiter, as an HRD recruiter, what are you looking what are you looking for and how are you assessing and judging what talent is? So do you want somebody who's got like a B and two Cs from a really challenging school at A level, but had a lot of life experiences, had to work, was accountable for their siblings, had to deal with high levels of stress, um, all those life responsibilities and versus somebody who got straight A stars because they were coached and um, uh, had a very guilted experience experiences but may not have any of their own opinions and certainly doesn't have much depth because they've not really had any challenging life experiences and have a whole set of expectations right they arrive in the business saying you know when do i become ceo and they they founded a business you know selling coffee at university or whatever or or tech um so they have this these kind of slightly privileged ideas but have probably an ungrounded sense of what it is that they can bring versus 14 years of working with this community, very grounded, very real, very strong sense of family ethics, very grounded in terms of responsibilities and work ethic and relationships. I find, in my experience, that they have very good at real relationships. So it, it depends what you're recruiting for. So you've got this millennial wave of talent who have very high expectations, different sort of expectations than you and I maybe had when we went to work. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe a different work ethic, maybe more value. And by the way, these aren't necessarily bad things, but maybe value out of work experiences greater than career or or work or are more interested in how they feel about what they do and its purpose and its value and their experience of going to work and 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 how they're treated versus then you know you and i just cracking on and best yeah. do the job otherwise you're fired exactly <laughs> by the way that the tea's over there yeah that would have a job gotta pay yeah. I'll, I'll do whatever uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's some funny stories there if we get to it as well. So, so basically, um, we're we're comparing we're, we're comparing apples against pears. So we're looking at where companies fall into the mistake of recruiting on polish uh, and ease of the people. I like that recruiting um, on polish because they've had these experiences. So the people who are in decision making positions in authority in businesses are typically from the same background, and you know, I don't, I don't, don't believe that they're. Re- they're racist in the slightest that's not not my experience but what they do fall into is they assume unconsciously that uh, because they're so successful what they did uh is the right way and so they're looking for people who've been to oxbridge or other top universities they're looking for people who sound and look like them offer points of connection but don't we all we do we're all tribal so so my definitely where i'm not coming from is blaming white middle class uh dis- people who who run the businesses and who are in the exec and management world absolutely not what i'm saying what i am saying is there's an amazing opportunity there's this huge pool of different sorts of talent and organizations are at that point where profitability and innovation is slowing down and if we are going to be competitive on a world market we have to radically UKPLC has to radically change the way it thinks about what it will do and and innovate very quickly otherwise it's toast so a bit like organizations back in the day who didn't engage with tech 
uh, <laughs> got eaten alive. You know, we all, both of you and I have some stories about that, I'm sure. Yep. Um, and here we are again. Organizations that don't understand how to attract and unlock different sorts of talent will be toast because how are they going to innovate when effectively you've got only the same sort of people saying, only the same sort of thing. How are you going to get any innovation out of that? It just doesn't work. Um, so this is a kind of tipping point moment to UK PLC. And you and I know we work with some of the best exec firms in the country who get this and want to really unlock that potential and have another breakthrough in terms of profitability. Um, so that's kind of broadly speaking uh, what we bring and why talent aren't getting through is because state education, uh, hopefully there's not too many state uh, teachers on uh, listening. And, it, you know, my experience with them is they're brilliant, but the system doesn't work. So you can't compare like a kid who's had a difficult who comes from a difficult community and, and goes to a, you know, a non-high-performing state school where there's lots of disruption and difficulty in young teachers compared to a remarkably well-oiled private education with lots of, lots of huge input and benefits from high-caliber teachers. I mean, it's just, you're just not going to get the same answer. So you have to th think think about like what is it you're assessing for so is it are you, could you be assessing for for um other qualities like uh creativity or or determination or drive or relationship skills or 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 growth capacity so those are the sort of things that organizations should start thinking about if that's the problem they're trying to resolve listen if they're like no we're good where we are we don't want the change fine but let's revisit those organizations five ten years from now because they're probably they're probably not innovating across any component of their business if they're saying we don't want to change our people that to me says we don't want to change and if you're not inclusive then you're also probably close-minded and therefore you're not listening to your people which is why and i'm sure you saw that 62 percent on glass door of people entering the job market assessing a business's openness on their level of diversity particularly across the management so the best kids and it's not even a question of ethnicity the best kids coming into the job market those you know those kids who've gone to the best universities are looking at how engaged and evolving the organization is and whether and the culture there and whether they want to go and you know commit to that company you don't want to go into an environment that you know you've got to get hit every glass ceiling on the way up right like so look at the cons the consultancy model in my mind is a broken model like it, i i'm speaking to young you know high achievers who are going in to work for the big consultancy firms and effectively what the carrot is if you kill yourself for the next 15 20 years you'll make partner yeah you might well, I don't know anybody who's <laughs> going to commit to that anymore. So they're sitting on a busted flush and they're expecting really interesting talent to come into the consultancy firms, but they're just not going to do it. No, they're not going to give up 15 no. years. The cool stuff is startups or tech. Um, that's where all the energy and the best talent's going. So if you're a mid-market firm, right, and you pay mid-market salaries and you've got mid-market products and services that are very diff difficult to differentiate from your competitive peer group, what is the differentiator? It's got to be your people and how you unlock the talent in there, unless some listener can tell me what else it might be. That's where my thinking has finally concluded. The next big breakthrough is people. It's people. So people, I, look, I fully agree. 
Diversity allows you to unlock the potential of the corporate, changes its mindset, will lead to a better bottom line. The world is going global, apart from Britain with Brexit. Um, and so I see all of that. Well, just on that point, I, oh, still, I okay. still think the travel of direction for businesses is being more inclusive, being more global. So yeah. although the political populist noise is closed, closed protectionist, businesses are not on that same track. No. Hence that kind of toxic language where Boris said, F business. Uh, I think people who are in business will look at that and go, wow, really? Yeah, I mean... I, I, it, 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 we, we were talking in the car. I think we're, we're at the end of a, a four or five year cycle. We'll see. 2020 and Trump will know whether we're at the end of the cycle or we're in the middle. Yeah, it could be the beginning of the end or the end of the beginning. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Okay, so this is great. So, um, one question I've got mm. that, that I was probably going to ask later, but it seems appropriate. Yeah, now. go for it. Um, you talked about fundamentally the corporate company profit maximization we yeah. talk about how shareholder value yeah. was the reason and, and uh, i've mentioned on this show multiple times how friedman in the 70s changed it from uh, being a you know profit retained to profit dividend yeah. to shareholder um so we've done everything as you said earlier we we've we've basically cut sliced sl- done everything yeah. everything we could right yeah Where's People, the fat left? Right? Well, Where's the easy yeah. fat left? It's gone, isn't it? But we, 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 we've suppressed wages, so yeah. we've done everything we can to maximise that profit. Right. So the next thing that I've been reading a lot about, obviously, is AI or machine learning. Yeah, and robotics as well. Robotics and the replacement of the workforce altogether. Yeah. So while you're focusing on inclusion and diversity, mm. our companies simply go, actually, let's just leapfrog that whole thing mm. and go to the next stage where we don't even need people because mm. that actually what are, what are the people going to do what are, what are all the people going to do if we're all into robotics and AI and we don't have jobs well this is where Yuri Naval's book Homo Deus and uh, 21 Rules for the 21st Century you know we talk about universal basic I'm with you by the way mm. but, but he talks about universal basic income he talks about the 80% called the great unwanted, not the unemployed, mm. the great unwanted, right. um, where society literally is paying people to stay at home, yeah. to not work, but to remain as consumers yeah. within the pool. Sounds quite dystopian. Oh, it's awful, if it comes true. Mm. But, but we are seeing, naturally, because we're both technologists, we are seeing automation removing elements of the workforce. Right. You know, I, 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 I would say if you came on the train today, Daniel. Um, you probably bought the ticket out of a machine. You went no, through a barrier. I did. I went through a barrier, but I bought a ticket from somebody. Okay. Generally, I buy it from a machine. I go through Fair a barrier. Enough. The door's open. There's no guard. I get on a train. The train doesn't really need a train driver. Mm. It's just because it's a straight line. Mm. It really doesn't. DLRs proved you don't. Mm. Um, fundamentally, that's a very antiquated automation mm. And we're not talking sophisticated automation mm. where, you know, doctors are now mm. having operations. To, you know. So are we, are we, are you trying to build in diversity and inclusion, but mm. is it just going to be leapfrog where actually we're not, any of us, doesn't matter what hue of person you are mm. uh, or, or gender, you're not needed apart from a small slither at the top. Mm. Well, whether, whether, 
I always, you know, I think it's easy to run ahead of ourselves. Like, what will actually society look like in, in 20 years from now? My gut feeling is not massively different. There'll be small movements. Um, so it's kind of practical nuts and bolts. What actually can business leaders do now? Well, they can recruit different sorts of people and encourage different sorts of people to flourish and, and, and to innovate in their organization. That is fairly easy compared to let's kind of invent the rocket ship or hovercraft or whatever yeah. which i'm sure is coming but it, look at hs2 do, do i mean wasn't that the opportunity to have a groundbreaking idea of transportation and effectively we're just you know getting a train and making it 20 minutes faster um you know that there's a, for me that's how human behavior plays out you know yeah. you have all these amazing ideas but what do people actually do uh, I think, you know, um, culture eats strategy for breakfast and that plays out society as well as it does as in business, I think. Yeah, I mean, Sweden actually did something which was quite groundbreaking. They, they instead chose to uh, give everybody who worked from home in a corporate company, um, they gave them a um, tax break. So instead of trying to build more roads and more railways and more people moving, mm. they said, let's yeah. stop people moving. So they just changed the way that they looked at the model. Is that sort of a, like a trickle-down effect? Like if they gave people money, they'd just spend it locally? Or yeah, did they and that was the other idea. Invested. That local businesses would then thrive. People in the community would know each other because mm. they were local. Mm. It just seemed such a sensible logic. I think they should start that with me and give me money. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so, so you, you're not... You, 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 let's park AI in the workforce thing then maybe that's 20 years out so, well I think there'll be lots of stuff evolving but I also think my point was who's likely to do the innovation driving on that if it's not different <laughs> sorts of talent yeah. because let's be honest if the talent that's already in place isn't delivering this they're not going to deliver it in the next 10 years are they no. like somebody i was you know no names mentioned but a very significant ceo running a tech business worked out of his file effects and never used his product which is digital so you know it tells you everything right so the the the, 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 the those amazing waves of different sorts of talent who are probably you know highly tech engaged who are natives to tech who've got different life experiences and when you throw those into the kind of cultural mesh of an organization and structure and discipline discipline and, and processes you're going to get different outputs that's interesting right not all of them will succeed not every individual will succeed but that's fine because what's happening now in in employment circles is people just are not committing to a lifelong commitment to one business hence Absolutely. i'm saying i think the consultancy model is a busted flush i just don't think really interesting people are going to commit 15 years to make partner yeah. and the partners are going to have to work hard to keep their resource and they've committed to a 15-year journey so they're bought into the model not realizing it's them that are going to become the workhorse yeah. and with diminishing returns yeah so Ponzi know, schemes broken. Yeah, it's interesting times, isn't it? Because like young people just aren't willing to do that, and maybe they shouldn't. But what's interesting about the immigrant community is that that's one area where they will. They don't mind working hard for a, a, a generous reward because um, those expectations aren't there. You know, uh, so as much as one might demonise uh, immigrants or difference. 
generally speaking, in my experience, is they've got a great work ethic. They're here to work, and you're a perfect example, right? Your family, your friend network, you, you described everybody wants to be a doctor, and if they're not a doctor, maybe they're reaching for the moons, but they're going to end up doing something pretty good. Yeah. They're taxpayers, right? They're contributors. They'll end up being a dentist. Uh, or, or And all the data says that, right? All the data says yeah. immigrants are the greatest tax contributor as a segment. So... All that nonsense about the fact that they're not um, they're not here to work but just scrounge is absolutely unbacked up by data. It's just not true. Yeah. So um, and obviously businesses see through that. So that's just that's just a political agenda. So businesses are looking at you know, with all the pressure of shareholder return. How do how do we how do we drive profit from this point forward? How do we like you know. Uh, is our sector ripe for disruption from tech? Lots are, right? You and I know lots of sectors. You're like, oh, my God, really? Do they still do that? You know, all that back office salaries, all of those kind of you know, insurance, reinsurance, they've got to be open. They've got to be open for te- te- tech disruption, right? Banking is at the moment with you know, people like Monzo and what have you. Um, uh, so all of that's happening anyways. So... If we want to accelerate and accept change, which is one of those kind of inevitable things, let's find people who are willing, open and embracing change. Because in my experience, people who've moved into this country are the bravest of people. Because it took courage to come to a brand new country, learn a new set of languages and cultures. So they already have a flexibility of attitude and a plastine mind capable of multi-languages, multi-social realities they're going to be interesting people. Why wouldn't you want to employ that? So put aside kind of traditional antiquated ideas of exam results. And by the way, has anybody ever asked you what degree score you got or what A-levels or what? Nobody has ever stopped right. me in any corridor in life saying, what grade did I get? I've got, a, I've got one of those things called an MBA and I say it stands for more BS than anyone else. Right, exactly. So, uh, you know... Um, surely it's about what people do once they're at the world of work. And, and in my mind, the kind of those key attributes and mindsets can all be taught. And I've proved that through 10 years of working with that community. You know, we're talking about the ability to, um, to, to create, to get on with people, to communicate effectively, to, to be unstoppable, to um, have emotional bandwidth uh, to to not to, to overcome obstacles and challenges. If you think of what that community has had to do, do in order to get to that point where they're having that job interview, stop listening for polish and understand what it is that they've had to overcome and where that value might be tremendously needed in your business, right? And people don't go, hang on a minute, let's just be let's just stop this ridiculous antiquated assessment idea and start looking at what value they might bring the organization because if a kid has had to deal with you know deceased parents which is very typical um having to earn alongside study um dealing with very challenging communities uh that is a, a whole set of life experiences uh reinventing themselves because you have to right because they have a narrative that they're not worthy to be at the best university so there's a kind of transformational component in that so they arrive at this your business so full of human growth and experiences that businesses say they're crying out for and yet they keep on recruiting for polish it makes absolutely no sense 
but that's just safety. That's really safety. Right, comfort. Comfort. Yeah. So, again, like, let me just make this clear. Like, I do, do not think UK PLC is racist. I just, I mean, maybe there are people in there that are, but I haven't found them. So, effectively, what's going on is just habit and comfort. So, imagine that, that you're a really stressed, tired, busy executive, and uh, you're under a lot of pressure, uh, the business hasn't been performing. You're trying to get your head around a whole bunch of new potential innovations to, to remain competitive. And you've got constrained budgets. You're going to recruit somebody. Who are you going to recruit? You've read and understood that kind of actually it would be interesting to have dive. You know that you should because you've got an HR memo on your desk about it. Um, and you've, you know, you've watched those uh, unconscious bias compliance <laughs> centric um, show, um, software that you have to tick and so you understand it so it de-risks it for the organization but what happens when you're under pressure who are you going to recruit you're going to recruit somebody you think that you can get on with who's going to take your command who you can manage you're not going to have to get your head around the cultural and social differences something that's easy something that you somebody you could get on with and have uh, points of re- relatedness yeah, talk rugby go, talk go rugby talk cricket talk yeah. golf uh, talk about your, your wife, talk about private school, talk about your kids. People look for similarities. They don't look for difference. That, that, that's, people don't look for difference. The issue with that is if you always recruit on familiar, you're always going to get familiar outputs. Um, and effectively, you end up with same, same businesses that are homogenous. Right. So people end up recruiting people in their likeness and therefore, they've had the same life experiences, and therefore, you get the same outputs, rather than taking a risk. Because you know, my God, I don't. I feel, I feel uncomfortable. I don't know yeah. what it's like to to be with an Indian guy. I, I feel uncomfortable. I, feel, I It's not like then they're, they're racist. It's like I just, I just don't. What are the cultural connections? How yeah. can I get on? And so they just avoid it. Well, I'm I'm well known in my family as the coconut, brown on the outside, white on the inside, because I went to private school, army officer, the whole thing. Yeah. And um, culturally, and it is culture that, um, you know, I, I don't play cricket, I'm not a cricket fan, and yeah. I don't watch Bollywood films. So yeah. culturally, yeah. Um, I am... That the, guy, yeah. Yeah. So although I do have family and so that i I've, I've got a toe in that culture mm. um but let's move let's move on to what you're doing next which is you're writing a book about this though yeah yeah tell me more so loads of people kept on asking me because you know i was sharing this this narrative and people were really excited about it and 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 i'm sure you've i know you've signed up to the inclusion I which have. is our monthly blog posts, our newsletter, which effectively is an opportunity for me to kind of share these ideas. And also, every month, somebody from our network, because we've worked with all these amazing young people who are now, what, 24, 25, 26, and have got amazing jobs. So they're communicating what it's like for them as diverse people coming into UK PLC. And they're sharing their experiences. So insightful. And I hope when HRDs and business leaders read their stories, they go, my goodness, this is exactly the sort of person we want to employ. They're, you know, real, thoughtful, hardworking, considerate, respectful, really great humans, right? Um, Sharing their life experiences and helps paint a picture of like, oh, that's why they didn't get three A's because they're dealing with all of this 
and also trying to study. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just it's just it's, you're just chalk and cheese. You know, it's different life experiences. So I get to share and challenge and i guess I, that's my role really on on the inclusion is to be the challenger and to write challenging things we also have guest authors who are hrds or ceos of businesses sharing their thoughts and reflections on it sign up please do and the center out of that came this idea uh for a book diverse diversify or die um and um effectively it's drawing upon you know 14 amazing years of deep deep experience you know i've i've worked i've worked with maybe 70 or 80 different state schools we've had over 5000 young people come through our programs we've delivered over 10000 hours we've worked with over 1000 executives we've worked with some of the uk's best known executive boards and teams so i'm drawing from all of this experience so it's a kind of a combination of amazing stories because i think stories are really important and real insight and experience the hard way which is maybe that's why I've signed up to Marathon de Sable. I only want to do things the hard way. <laughs> I should have a fam- family motto is only the hard way. <laughs> so maybe it's just like I don't, I don't trust the easy way. I just, why is that? That's just so strange now. That I Who say. knows? Yeah. Um, oh, and okay. by the way, yes. I have been a- approached by some uh, agents and publishers, but I'm definitely looking. Good. So if you're listening to this mm. and you think this is an interesting and lots of people should hear about it, then please get in contact. Um, we'd love to hear from you and it. And obviously, if you're an agent or a publisher, drop me a line. No worries. Leave a comment in on our Facebook page or go to Arrival Education and contact Daniel yeah, directly. You can, yeah, exactly. You can contact Now, me. Arrival Education, yeah. why the name and how did it come about? So, you know, we're just talking about stories. And I, I, I have this idea that humans actually uh, uh, learn better through stories. Absolutely. I think. Yeah. I, think. I just think uh, lots of documents with lots of words and just no, never get read. <laughs> Right. <laughs> How many times have we, like, um, you know, some of the CEOs get like a thousand emails a day. Like, what is the point? Right? They're never going to get through. No. They're just going to cherry pick the ones they yeah. want to read. Right. So stop sending emails is what I say. You know, these documents you're supposed to read. Or you've got the tick bottom at the end to prove you read it. So people just... Go straight to the yeah. end. But, you know, we were habitually learned that. Like, did you ever look at your instructions for match for making... Um, RTFM. <laughs> the instructions got thrown away. Yeah. I never... Right. I, and then I would always have two or three bits left over when I made an aeroplane or a tank. Absolutely. It was just... Airfix. Uh, airfix. Brilliant. Um, yeah. So uh, what was the question? I got over so <laughs> <laughs> No, you keep doing that. Um, the question really was, how did you come up with the name for oh, yeah. Rival Education? And yes. what's the backstory? So, so... So the backstory, um, brilliant stories, um, or, 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 or interesting stories is probably the better way to say it. So I was working in the city, and not in a kind of a high-powered role, but, you know, very well paid for what I was doing, you know, like, you know, a lot of privileged people, I sort of... <laughs> I was playing rugby and somebody said, you should go and work in the city. And I said, okay, what's that? And I sort of turned up for an interview and I got offered the job there and then because I played rugby. Right. And, you know, I was making disgracefully large sums of money right off the bat, in my perspective at least, given that I was like you know, eating bad pasta before and then all of a sudden I was eating in the gavroche. Um yeah, very similar. I left the army, yeah. not knowing what to do, so yeah. I was chucked into the city. I worked for Shearson, yeah. stuck on a 
desk having been a 10 mile a morning runner yeah it was the worst thing i yeah, hated the body right but, but i played rugby i was ex-army yeah. and did you ever play at the lloyds of london private yes oh i mean amazing got to be the most so amazing i got a story, I've got a story about that played so I, I i played a game the night because people don't know where it is but it's an amazing ground yeah, right south london somewhere um, can't yeah work it out and what about that. the what about the ground in the city what's that one called just oh off? what the um the royal Old yeah, artillery company exactly one. yeah you no. just don't know it's there right and i yeah. turn up there once to play a game and all of these squaddies stood up because they thought i was an officer <laughs> Yeah, I walked in and they, I was an officer and they wouldn't stand ah, there. That's because you're too short. Ah, no, I used to be taller. <laughs> <laughs> Jumping out of planes made me short. All right. Um, yeah, so... So, yeah, so back to the story. So yeah, what so happened... So you're in the city. So I'm in the city and um, that's my focus and whatever. And then my flatmate's brother was stabbed to death in a street incident. So he was killed over a game of Snake on a Nokia phone. And one of the kids had an, a knife. And I just, it's that worm started to work its way into my, like, why would somebody kill somebody else over a game of Snake on a Nokia Did phone? They, what, they wanted the phone? They or? wanted the phone to play the Snake game. And then just escalated, right? Because boys right. are full of hormones and Yeah, yeah, yeah. Give anger. me the phone, no. Give me the phone, no. How dare you, yeah. F you, whatever. You're a whatever. Escalate super quick. And uh, died. And so... seeing how she was coping with it made me want to go and make a difference so i I had like a connection and i and i and i started giving my spare time around work um trying to input into young people from a very challenging area and i fell upon this this school that had it in its catchment area what used to be called stonebridge estate it's been pulled down now but this is like a west indian high-rise estate right i just got stuck in i just got stuck in at the school i got stuck into that community and um and then i caught the bug and then so i quit the security and the salary and the pensions and all that sensible stuff i don't think my mother has ever forgiven me (laughs) um and dived into trying to make a difference and then so i had a year in this school and amazingly and maybe this is privilege right and lots of people would listen to this this podcast or this radio show and say they're proof so i just literally rang up businesses and said can you write me a check and they did like Artemis wrote me a check <laughs> didn't know who I was or what I was doing and I'm best friends with the founders now wow so and the same was true with the economists did they have a calling to this or did they just well I, I, culturally Artemis is really cool so Artemis is not a big firm I mean everybody knows it's interesting because if you start thinking of the firms that we work with often they've got a high presence but not as big as people think they're so like Investec are another one of our clients and we've worked with them forever so uh, yes the culture is great at Artemis and that's from the founders so I know Lindsay and Derek really well I've known them for a long time obviously since they <laughs> wrote me a check um, and they really get the value of what we're trying to do and The Economist was the same. Sally Bibb at The Economist, um, brilliant. You just went to her book launch. I did, you? yeah. See, they're friends after all these years. Yeah. She just took a punt on me. I didn't, what was her book called? 
strength finders. So that's her thing is strength finders. So she helps people articulate what their strengths are and work to their strengths rather than their weaknesses, which you know makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. And given I'm a man of a few strengths and a lot of weaknesses, perhaps that's definitely the case. What, sorry, did she wrote the original strength I finder? I don't think so, no. Because that was a book when I was in Microsoft that we all got. And it was the book that probably changed my life. Ah, there you go. Okay. I, she resonated with with that, and then she's really moved it on to the next level. I love. I mean, she's really well thought of, and she yeah. does great work. So, um, anyway, hats off to sorry, Sally. I, no, I no, 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 it's good. So, so Sally, yeah, and a few. So others. it's a few others, and I got a massive tax rebate, as you can imagine. Yeah. And um, I just went into that school, and what I was looking for. Really, because I, I, I wanted to make a difference. I didn't want to be in just another charity, right? Or just another charity case helping people who needed help. What I wanted to do was find things that genuinely could deliver scale and impact. And so out of that year experience, I came up with a program that was brilliant in, and necessary in concept, but very difficult to deliver on. And that program was called Successful Life. So effectively, it was a four-year development delivered in partnership with UK PLC. And what we would do is we would go into, you know, challenging inner city schools, predominantly in London, but elsewhere. And we would look for the 30 most influential young people age 14 or year 10 in new money. And... We had a clever way of selecting them, but effectively we were borrowing the kind of Red Bull, Nike model of key influencers and formers, believing that we could have a massive ripple effect by transforming the lives of really interesting kids and doing, giving them the skills and the insights and the access and the business network that they couldn't get hold of because, in my experience, boys stack shelves and girls worked at beauticians and hairdressers. And that already sets like a social condition on yeah. that community right yeah, yeah. so like why wouldn't you be a drug dealer um so so because i had that network of city connections and because i had uh, a gift for writing and facilitating and delivering work i backed myself to create this program and we built a really really interesting four-year development program off of the back of it that's taking kids who are about to fail about to be permanently excluded or whatever and and now they're in some of the best graduate programs and the best firms there is going. So, like, so whether it's GSK, who are a client, um, or Investec, or Artemis, or you know, any number of different organisations that we've worked with over the last fourteen years, we have people in those organisations who have both the mindset, the drive, the energy, and the skill and the network to flourish. And it's amazing to see that. But for me, that was just a proof of concept. I just wanted to prove it could be done. And so what we do now is we we work directly with those senior HRDs who are looking to um, disrupt, to change, who need to transform their businesses, who need to innovate, who need to change. And, uh, you know, as you know, we've worked with some of the best best organisations who who are currently doing that, um, in order to figure out how to better attract, retain, and progress socially and ethnically diverse talent. Um, and it's an absolute privilege and joy from both ends, both working with the firms, but also working with those young people who, obviously, over kind of really getting to know that community so well, uh, uh, I'm a huge advocate of. So. How do you find 
those talented kids. I mean, you said IQ is not the key criteria. Uh, because what you said was... Well, don't forget, the, 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 the academic systems are skewed, right? You're just never going to get three A's out of a bad school. No, so what I'm trying to say is, though, but when you go in, so you, you go into schools and you say to them, right, I'm looking for some smart, bright yeah. kids. Or yeah, yeah. This say, was, right, this is this is the programme as was. It's yeah. a success for life. We, we wound that down about three years ago okay. uh, just because there was no more funding. Okay. Um, and then, and actually, we'd always work with corporates. And during that period, effectively, corporates came at it from a CSR perspective only. And there's nothing wrong with community engagement. Um, however, over the last three years, all the businesses have woken up to my goodness, we need to change who we recruit and why. And it's become a commercial motivation, not a. a do goodery motivation, you know. Um, so, um, so all of our client clients are, uh, are corporates now, right? So, how does it work for you today? What happens today now? So, like, we would be approached by um, an HRD or some HRD again, human human resource director, like a senior HR person, right? Which human resource? So, human resources for people who don't know typically manage the people in an organization so their roles could be about managing the executive team or recruitment or culture or it could be like they could be a generalist and they're doing um comp and bends or you know processes or whatever but fundamentally the human stuff right yeah um uh so typically hr people are people people and so those sort of people might reach out to us because they know that they want our help for the exec team to get it get the commercial potential um or they are struggling to shift the culture because shifting culture is very difficult so we've got lots of experience of uh, embedding change programs that drive different behaviors at, at mid management and senior management um if they want a dni strategy because up to this point because it's been evolving people don't have dni strategies you know, as you and I would understand a strategy, right? Mm-hmm. Like with clear milestones yeah. and outputs and Goals, executions and KPIs and all yeah. those things. Yeah. It's just like a series of strange activities that's not connected. And of course, DNI is often being given to people who are right at the fringe of the business with no influencing skill or capacity to drive cultural change. So what's happening is um, uh, uh, DNI is getting driven into the heart of the business, and some organisations are putting that on the exec scorecard, so they're effectively they're accountable. Um, so we're helping them have strategies that are going to work, rather than a series of activities like you know uh, early years recruitment, right? Which you know is great, but if your culture hasn't changed, they're all going to leave in a toxic way. Or you do a series of events, or you do a yet another report. Uh, or whatever, and uh, it doesn't doesn't actually shift anything, right? And, and that's what the evidence is saying: is people have really struggled to 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 to, to drive e- ethnicity in staffing numbers because they don't have good strategies. It's not joined up. So we can do that, or uh, we can do training, or whatever. So that that those are typically how it's going. Or we get approached by a CEO, um, and uh, they want to. Uh, for us to directly support them or to help them Im- implement it, absolutely fine. Uh, that's typically how the relationship starts. You know, we're, we, I found that uh, relationships are the heart of uh, engaging with us and, and, and 
people knowing us and referring us. Yeah. Okay. So, look, we're fast approaching the news. Um, one of the things, my wife is a NED, a non-exec direct, right. on uh, several PLCs. Right. And uh, thank God she is. One of us has to do yeah, something has to work. <laughs> thank you, my darling. Um, but, but besides that, we, we have a joke, which is, you know, is she just a tick box in the requirement? You know, is she diverse as well? No, she's, she's white Anglo-Saxon. Right. Uh, Geordie, uh, yeah. hard as nails, which is why I've got two yeah. black belts. I have to protect myself. Yeah, right. Um, so, yeah, because we joke that if she was black, possibly gay she mm. ticked all three boxes mm. so is, is it a case of a tick box people are saying or is it a case of you know actually this is tangibly making a difference right. because what worries me is that you know um of when she gets an offer coming uh, through uh, it's like you know oh yes they're looking for digital they're looking for female they're yeah. looking for you know and they, those are the skill sets that come up to her as a criteria first and yeah. foremost yeah. um and then she sits on a board which is invariably her yeah. plus Some eight other guys who yeah. are all ex-city accountants yeah, right. now um I, I want you to hold your answer right. Till after I the don't news. Think, see, I've, I've already forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> and we we will we will certainly come back to that. Um, also, uh, I think we will go on to look at where you think this is all going next. Mm. But I also want to come back to some of the things that you we talked and touched on at the beginning. Um, yeah. Your your marathon de sable and why yeah. you're doing it. Yeah, and also you know some of the people that we both know because that would be interesting <laughs> as well. Oh. Yes, we will cover some of those. Why wasn't I invited onto this earlier? <laughs> you have to blame a few of the people we know. Um, Daniel, also, are you going to be playing a track after the Thank news? Thank God, as well? I thought you said that. I'm just about to play a trumpet. Like, <laughs> what trumpet? Uh, but we'll tease people. We'll ha- have one of your favourite tracks after right. the news. To interact with the show or leave a comment, please join our Facebook group, Sound Talks Technology. And don't forget to tell your friends.
There we go, the talking heads. Talking heads. Burning down the house. What was that for? Because I once burned down somebody's house. No, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't. I'm going to burn your house down. No, I didn't. That's not true. So I just love Talking Heads. I think Talking Heads were, for me, a rite of passage band that I started to listen to when I was, I don't know, 15 or so, yeah. along with David Bowie. Um, you know, I grew up in a very rural area, and I, I, uh, my, my parents had gone to London and had moved into a rural area, and... I just felt like I didn't belong. So I felt like a bit of an outsider. So I think I think that kind of those sort of the concepts and ideas I really gravitated to at a very young age. And I just, you know, I just played the hell out of talking. Yeah, no, brilliant. Just brilliant. Superb. When I first saw the videos, he was just not who I expected right. at all. Right, so maverick, yeah, and so interesting, right? And like, how on earth were they so popular when their stuff was so wacky? That's what I couldn't get my head around. It was like the B fifty twos at the right. time as well. Yeah, great band, another great band, or, or David Bowie. Like, yeah, David Bowie willfully seemed to throw his career to the ashes, and somehow people went with him. Yeah. Whereas, like, the typical route to stardom is find something that works and stick to it, right? And find the middle ground with a beat and something and lyrics people can kind of relate. That to. no one will ever remember in the yeah. future. Uh, you know lift music and um that's how you make money whereas i've been i've always gravitated to kind of really interesting and back in the day you and i would listen maybe to the top of the pops and although they would these interesting bands might never make number one they were always there or there you know you'd it would be an interesting band and you'd be like wow that's kind of i hadn't thought about that before or that's interesting, you know, like, what, what is it to be American or what was it to have these kind of political ideas and, you know, not fully formed in a 15-year-old's mind but somehow very, very interesting from the kind of normality of my rural existence. Yeah, and I have to say, I mean, I was a massive jam fan at the time. Yeah, I love the jam. Um, it was just because it wasn't mainstream. I couldn't do mainstream yeah, music. Um, that they made so much money and so often mainstream like that would never happen because they got a whole bunch of number ones and made millions yeah but also like not as to the same extent as bowie or bowie um you know but they they reinvented themselves you know star council paul weller on his own go with the star council oh i I moved with it it went from town called malice it seemed to be a logical move but we'll see um okay back to back to what we've been talking about right um so I, i was just asking you whether you know, my wife, who uh, is on a non-exec director board, yeah, no, is, yeah. is she just, you know, lipstick on a pig? Is she um, obviously not my wife? But yeah, <laughs> take that back right now. Yeah, um, right? But, but is it lip service? Is it the tick box that you mentioned? Or is it actually, are we seeing the fundamental? Will we, will we see the bottom line effect and the glass ceiling broken? Will we start to see boards that aren't all white male 40-year-old ex-city accountants? Yeah, well, I, th- I think I think for the organisations that um, have that client group that's like them and there's a lot of wealth in that client group, perhaps they won't change or perhaps there'll be no change for five or ten years until that, that crop of people retire. Yeah. But... For the organisations that need to innovate, that need to change, that want to remain competitive, that want to be valid, are all over this now, yeah. So... Um, so it's all about forces. So for some organisations, is it still lip service? Yes. Are some organisations at the point where effectively it's a CSR engagement? Yes, fine. You know, everybody's on different journeys. And then some organisations are 
all over this mm. and maybe it won't surprise you that the most uh, successful and innovating organizations are on it the most so uh, are we starting to see also the equity uh, sorry the, the pay gap uh, uh, disappear as well i mean are we are we starting to see um you know inequality across that group as well so because one of the things is inclusion mm. but but inclusion at a different price inclusion mm. at a different level mm. well you know right now maybe that gap is still there but it'll be interesting that the um the ethnicity pay gap is data will be coming down the pipeline pretty quickly so that'll be interesting when that comes out um i i so one of our clients is coots right and so Coots... The, the private bank. The private bank, the bank for the Queen. And I they, once had an account there. Right. So interestingly, so why did you not? Why did you no longer... As soon as you leave the army, they take it away from you. Oh, me. that's why. Right. <laughs> when you join the army, you, welcome, sir. Have a nice Coots soon account. As soon as you leave, we'll have those back. Thank you very much, sir. Unless your name is Lord Fontelroy. Yeah, right, right, right. So, you know, private wealth is an interesting area. So anyways, Coots approached us, and I'm sure they won't mind me saying this, because, by the way, a great organisation great people is that um they started to see a, a theme that the new wealth generators do not look like the old and so they're staffed with you know privileged middle class predominantly men double barreled names um who don't know or can relate to the new wealth generators so they're moving quickly or as quickly as they can to try and bring in people that can connect with those new wealth generators because the new wealth generators typically don't look like old money uh, you know tech is really flattened off the game isn't it so you know when you're on when a tech platform you're gonna like who's the founder let me just go and have a look at who they are and then i'll choose whether i want to <laughs> use the tech platform or not you just is it good is it not you'll use it you have no sense of who the who the starter was so there's lots of different sorts of people have come into that space and um, and there's lots of diverse people who've done very well um coots and other um fund management firms high wealth firms are trying to attract those different sorts of talent um to remain competitive and to have a competitive edge so well done coots for you know looking at that um so there's an example where things are actually changing in reality uh you know it's it is all changing it um, is I, I'm, I'm i'm having to ask you those questions because i have to well, challenge you've got to fill the time right otherwise well what no we no it, it's genuinely <laughs> asking you about it because i, I mean because you're at the coalface, you're you're yeah. you're doing this stuff. Whereas you know, I can read it third hand, and you know, and, and try and understand from different people that I talk to. Yeah. But you know, I don't do what you do day in day out for right. fourteen years. So yeah. you know, might as well ask somebody who knows what they're talking about. Well, rather you might than me, as well, right? <laughs> who, as you anyone who listens to this show, be, knows you nothing. Be, <laughs> <laughs> you could pretend to be different people, right? It could be a great show, and you ask yourself a bunch of questions about <laughs> in a different voice. That would be interesting. Well, if you want, I can start doing another. <laughs> no, um, okay. Well, look, I think I think we've covered uh, a, a wide spectrum of what it is. I think it's really interesting. I think I agree fundamentally. Diversity and inclusion. I mean, I'm I'm somebody who looks at 
quite a lot, obviously. Um, I'm really proud of the fact that Microsoft now has Satya Nadali at, at the head. Right. Uh, yeah. Google has Sundar Pichai. Yeah. Um, Cisco has a female uh, Indian leader. Um, so again, you know, I'm. But, but these are all American companies rather than yeah. UK companies. Yeah. We're not seeing that yet here. Yeah, mind you. Let me just challenge that. Like, Ooh, I, had a, okay. I had a friend who went to Samford, and I said, like, "How many? How many black people? How, how many people are on the MBA? Like two hundred and thirty. How many black people?" So I still think it's a bit of a network over there, certainly on the investment side and the tech investment side. And if you look at the people who get funding in Silicon Valley, it's almost always white middle class men. Yeah. I mean, females are struggling to get investment. That is well known. Yeah. Um, And people of colour. I mean, yeah. uh, it's like a fa- it's like I, I think I read some. Actually, I won't quote it because I forgot the stat. But basically, there's a massive drop off between white to women to ethnic. Yeah, and at the bottom of that tree, unfortunately, are black women. Right. Yeah. Who who fundamentally aren't getting. So I think Oprah Winfrey's doing a lot now in that space to try yeah. and raise awareness. She's such a game changer, isn't yeah. she? And you know, I mean, the fact that she is as big as she is in America mm. is uh, down to her. I think. Yeah. Um, Okay, let's look at some fun things that Daniel does outside of DNI. Oh, uh, by the way, before we get onto the oh, fun absolutely, things, go on. Then. So, so we we were talking about like why executive teams do this. So, without naming the name of the organisation, but you know, probably the UK's best known retail outfit, mm-hmm. have a vision for the fact that they want to innovate and change, and they're going through a transformational period. And they're really getting the the dividend opportunity in in this. So their stores may be very diverse, but their management and their store managers aren't. So unpacking the why and creating the different cultures and opportunities to allow different voices to flourish, women, ethnicity, very exciting, coming right from the top very serious about it chosen us to partner with them to take that journey amazing no that's brilliant and it's great to hear that that is happening then yeah because it it, may take time for that to trickle through to other places right but if it starts there it's someone which i know you can't mention but we all would know who they are um that's great because Mm. that will that will have a ripple effect across the plc board i think so i mean everybody's looking at that particular exec board with the most excitement at the moment because of the the amount of transformation they're doing it's it's a very interesting company right now cool um okay um you've decided and we've touched on this a couple of times yes to put your body through my poor body my poor wife well i don't think your wife's doing it with you unless you're you're, but she's very understanding and very patient and she's you know, she is a saint. So, is this is this your uh, midlife crisis, or yes. is this your? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she said you couldn't have a Porsche. Hang on, I thought we agreed I was twenty six. <laughs> <laughs> it's radio; you can be however old you like. Yes. Um, so, why why MDS? I mean, well, you know, I I mean, maybe my life is a series of midlife crises because I have done the Harley Davidson through California. I okay. do off road motorcycling. So, you know, that happens. So um, I've done marathons, but typically I've never trained for them, I just say. <laughs> I just jump into a marathon and run it. Not particularly fast, I should say, but then I've not really trained. And I think my... So you're built for comfort, not speed, is what right, you're trying well, to say. I'm, just, I'm big, right? So running is not the sensible thing for me. Yeah. Um, so you thought you'd run on sand. So I thought I'd run on sand and 250 
kilometers. So if, if for me, it was, it was just actually, it's not really about the race, although that is, I'm looking forward to that. It's actually about who I need to be in order to get on that starting line. Yeah, okay, I get that. And so I know it's going to be a transformational experience because I got to lose I got to lose 20 kilos. And I haven't been that light since until I was 13, right? I think I came out big. Um and so I don't think I would w- maybe I would have done it by myself, but having a coach and I do recommend a coach for everything. Uh is definitely helping because it, it's like everybody knows how to lose weight. You eat less and you exercise more it's like calories right um but i love food and i'm a great cook (laughs) and i cook delicious food and you know (laughs) as you'll start to see on our facebook there's lots of pictures of food um and um and i like fine wine so you know i've always been heavy set but i've just because i was so so into my sport in my youth i just basically just thought i'd always get away with it yeah that's exactly the same box and, and now it's just run out yeah. so actually now is the point where i actually have to change my diet and everybody's been telling me right um and so here we are you know i've got to actually run 40 miles a week currently it builds up to 70 miles a week um and run a, a business and be a dad and and hopefully a half decent husband um and i've got to lose weight um uh, and then if I don't leave any stone unturned to get on that starting line, the kind of, I think, the level of confidence to get there and actually grasp that transformational experience for me will be profound. Um, running through the desert in whatever, 45 degrees heat will have its own transformational experience. Yep. You know, if you ever see pictures of people's feet. <laughs> I've got a friend, Andy Gregson, who's done it three times. I've talked to him. bloody stumps yeah um uh and i'm interested in that i've always been interested in that otherwise i wouldn't have been the sort of person who quit the security of job to do try and make a difference for other people or get myself to the point where you know i can have really interesting conversations with global leaders or to be the person who could believe that i could make a difference or to achieve the things that i have like i've been in and out downing street a whole bunch of times um Looking back on it, I think that was a kind of meaningless experience. Um, they, you know, the politicians, they promised the world and on the way out, you know, they've already forgotten about you. Yeah, next. Next. Um, but I think it was because of the things that, that I believed about myself through going through that journey and the things that I achieved as a result of those beliefs that gave me that public profile and allowed me to make a difference to lots of people's lives in different ways. I think. And so when you get to the end of this run, what next? Uh, the run of the Marathon de Sable. Uh, have you thought that far well, ahead? Well, first of all, I have to ask my wife's permission. <laughs> She'll be listening to this, I'm sure. So, Coast to coast South Africa? Yeah, right. Well, you know what? Um, I, I'm sort of got a man crush on Zach Miller at the moment. Do you know who Zach Miller is? No. Oh, he's an American guy who lives in a cabin. And um, obviously he's not big, but he does ultra running, but he sprints the entire thing. Okay. He takes off. Can I just point out for stop. listeners again, remind yourself. The mirror. Where's the mirror? But, you know, he's probably, what? 28. Yeah, with about the body frame Nine of nothing. Stone. Yeah. Actually, he's quite, he's got quite beefed out. But what's really exciting about him is he's totally cavalier. Like right. he takes off 
and doesn't stop. And there's this big thing about the UTMB. For those people, it's basically the Mont Blanc ultramarathon, right? right? Which is like the ultra run of the world, right? Because it's running over Mont Blanc. You know, it's just nuts, right? Yeah, Who why? does that? Why? Why would you do that? And Americans have famously never podiumed there. It's kind of dominated by the Europeans, you know. And these Nike kids turned up. <laughs> and took it apart and Zach just set off and never slowed down wow I mean there's some YouTube stuff of him he looks like he's sprinting and so I'm like channeling my Zach Miller because I think completely ungrounded and unrealistically I could run like him (laughs) obviously not true yeah but hey I could channel him you can channel him you can envision that I I could see that so yes Yes, I would love to to do the uh, the Mont Blanc. I because I did I did the twenty three last year, right? Which, by the way, is twenty five. They're lied, <laughs> and but, but there's definitely a journey for me because again, I didn't really train, and it was like eighteen hundred meters elevation, and there was no water station <laughs> between right ten kilometers and twenty kilometers, and that's where all the elevation was, and I ran out of water halfway through. Have you oh. never heard of the three P's: piss poor preparation and etc. Well, et you, you were in the army. Yes. You actually grounded and all of that yeah. stuff. Whereas I just thought, ah, <laughs> it can't Turn be up, that hard. Yeah. Ouch. And then I realised very quickly as I was going up something very steep, I couldn't run up this steep. <laughs> Basically, all these Germans with sharp elbows kept on overtaking me, power walking the way yeah, up. Yeah. So, but that was a real eye-opener, because I do love going to the Alps, and I do love running up the Alps. So I figured, ah, man, I would run up the Alps all the time. It's going to be super easy. But it was just too hot and too steep. Yeah, yeah. So times that by, I guess, 10. And that's where you are. And you need you need points. So the system is you need points and you have to run other ultra marathons to get a point base in order to That makes fly. sense. You can't just turn, rock up right. and do the world's die. hardest. Yeah, and die on the edge. <laughs> die. And then and then and then it's still only twenty five percent chance of you getting a place. So not only do you have to have the the uh, requisite points, you're also in a lottery. Okay. Uh, my days, crazy? yeah, yeah, totally. Because my days of doing mad things, I think, are behind me. Liar. <laughs> <laughs> well, once I get a hip operation, my wife did say to me, "You better slow down after that," because uh, I, I, I like you. I'm over. Well, you're not overweight. I'm overweight by two stone, but I need to get to eighty-two mm. kilograms. I said, "That's but that's big." So you might listen to that and go, "That's easy," but actually, do it. Like actually, lose that weight. Because that means, like, you have to radically change your diet. Yep. You have to be in calorie deficit every day. And you have to exercise every day. Actually take something. Um, and I think that's interesting because the ideas and beliefs and attitudes that you have that have got you here, the habitual stuff, you know, and I don't know about the listeners, but, like, if I'm stressed, I'm going to have a glass of wine or a gin and tonic or I'm going to eat a delicious bacon butter. Oh, yep. God. Um, Stop. Doing it to yourself, right. and then and then um, stopping that brings forth a whole series of feelings and emotions and attachments that can be quite stimulating. But I'm hoping, actually, as I work my way through that, that something in this process of you know um, shredding the skins, the layers, um, something new is revealed to myself by myself, which I am excited about yeah great and I, and I wish you well and I will certainly be contacting you post April 
Apparently, you lose, a, you lose a stone whilst running it. You can lose a stone. Yeah, I mean, it's again, an extreme way to lose weight. But well, yeah, um, and it is not all flat, and and mm. there are rocky places, mm. and it, uh, it is feet management that is the key that I've oh, been told. Actually, yeah, feet no. management. Yeah, you're a military man. So what they say when when you get to the tent, the people who don't make it are the people who crash out straight away. Yeah. So you've got to actually take that military approach. Is you've got to get into best practice, eat refuel, make your bed, sort your feet out, yeah. get ready for the next morning before you crash. Yeah, you've got to be fit for purpose. I mean, we used to talk about fit to fight, mm. right? There's no point getting to the other end and then find you can't fight. Yeah, because you were smashed. Yeah, I mean, we used to do a 30-mile south down, 80-pound backpack mm. march and shoot, mm. and along the way we'd have um, tests that mm. would keep making sure you had... Mental Yeah, so, you know... You'd come across a rifle that you hadn't seen, like an SA-80, which is what you'd you know, but you'd get an AK-47, yeah. and you'd have to strip it down, yeah. reload it, but you'd do it in the dark, blindfold, and then have yeah. to redo it. Or you'd get some other mental test, yeah. right? So those things would happen, but yeah. the key to it was we'd get to the end, and then they'd make us do a five-mile run up a hill yeah. and then fight, yeah. and then we'd have to go fight. Yeah. And it was all about being fit to, for purpose right at the right. end. There's no point right. being yeah. great at the first three no, that miles. is the great thing about the armed forces isn't it they've actually people don't realize this about the armed forces but their educational processes and, and systems are really really yeah. good like people don't know this but you know if if you're working in intelligence you might have to pick up a language in three months so obviously they've figured out how to teach stuff really quickly yeah. so they're amazing at kind of getting educational experiences across it's just a shame i think now we're slightly political ground here that um, we choose not to invest the proper resources into our armed forces and our people um because i think um you know for me uh they're heroes and heroines and people just seem to forget <clears throat> you know they risk so much and then they're sort of dropped when they retire and i just don't think that's right like if you're asking these brave men and women to go and do something on our behalf i think we should look after them better that's just my opinion yeah i fully agree with that but we don't Mm. Uh, and, and it's not just us. I mean, post Vietnam, Americans treated them very badly. Mm. Uh, Gulf War syndrome. Wow, interesting. Like it, it, jails and mental health issues. You know, jails are full of ex-military people. Like, yeah. How the hell has that happened? PSTD mainly. Yeah. Um, tramps. You know, like a lot of tramps are ex. Well, I think a lot of the people who there's a there, there's a couple of things. You, you you suffer from something called army barmy. Yeah. Um, so what happens is when you come out of if you're a squaddy um, who's used to a regimented. Yeah controlled life and then you no longer have that you don't have that you don't have the drive you don't have the desire no one's pushing you to do what you have to do offices are slightly different um but i remember coming out of the army and thinking you know civilian street was all fat lazy people pretty much you know um why why do you look that shape and why why aren't you training and why where's your discipline you know and you realize very quickly yeah, fat, lazy, and undisciplined. <laughs> Perfectly civilianised. Look at me now. Um, so yes, um, but yeah, we'll we'll see. I mean, I think I think you're right, but mm. there isn't enough done. Mm. Um, last couple of minutes. Mm. Um, you have a love of wine. I do. Yes. So um, my wife's parents have a place in a small wine village called Pouligny Montrachet, which for people who know wine yeah is pretty famous if not the most famous wine village in the world it's even mentioned okay i've just been shown like <laughs> whatever so um 
love I love it. I love walking through the vines. I love being there. I love being there in the sunlight, running through the vines. Great, great place in the world. Just lovely. You know, it's a wine apart. What a beautiful part of the world, which is probably why you do it as well, right? Yeah. Well, I, I we, we didn't get onto this full, because we should have had a full half hour on just wine alone. But, right. um, Daniel, we have run out of time. My I goodness, only have to say flown. thank you so much well, by for By the way, we're today. recruiting, so do if you're interested in what we've done or like the sound of it drop us a line great thank you sam that show was amazing to listen again please visit our website marlofm.co.uk or visit our facebook group sam talks technology and now you can subscribe on itunes never miss a show again see you next week same time same place